morning, I want to look with you specifically at Nehemiah 9. So if you're, you will turn there. Um, I, I, I don't know, when you hear people talk about, uh, let's say, matters of faith, matters of religion, and you hear that discussion, I think the assumption that we hear people coming to it with, or what we're assuming is the discussion is going to be all about, is the existence of God? You know, does he exist or does he not? And um, I would say if you look a little closer at the patterns of humanity across planet Earth, (laughs) you'll discover that people in general assume the existence of a God. I mean, actually, like the impression we get is that the case I have to make is that God exists, that there's something rather than nothing. And if you actually do, and there's multiple measures or studies of this that go, we're probably looking at like 90% to 98, something like that, 90 to 88% of humans assume the existence of some kind of divine being. Full-on atheism, or yes, even full-on agnosticism, like we can't know, is actually fairly rare across the population. And you can, you know, certain places can come to your mind. Um, when I was growing up, it was always, you know, Russia is the place of it's highly atheistic. Okay, look at it now, and as soon as you take the lid off of it, orthodoxy is roared back in. Today, the discussion might be Vietnam or China. Uh, you go in there, and you'll find a lot of traditional religions. Maybe it's not like a, a, a personal God in the way we understand it, but there's a lot of religious stuff going on. And my contention here would be probably the the defining question we ought to talk about is not the existence of God or a God-like figure, but what we probably should start out with thinking about is what is he like? Who is he? What's his nature? What's his character? What, what, What is characteristic of him? If you ask me for a description of God, who is that person? And closely following after that, what has he done? His person, his nature, and his works. That's where the battleground's at. Who is this God or this divine figure, and what is he like? And that, that's, that's really where the passage that we're going to look at this morning goes. So what you're looking at in Nehemiah 9, and I'm, I'm going to read a long passage, verse 6 all the way down to verse 37. I'm going to read a lot of scripture. But as I read, what I want you to follow is the flow of that. You're reading here kind of a record of Israel's history. Up to this point in Nehemiah, the big defining issue that's ongoing here is the the repair of Jerusalem. So in the big picture of Israel's history, I mean, we'll read it in a second, but God has brought them into the land, they've sinned, lots of chaos has happened, many cycles of repentance, rebellion, repentance, rebellion, rebellion, repentance, rebellion, 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 until you finally get to judgment, the exile. They've been carried off into a foreign land, and now after all of that has happened, now it's kind of rebuilding time. And in that rebuilding stage, they actually were at kind of a, an, a, a joyful moment in the story, because if you just look right before like um, the end of 8, the, the last part of 8, you've got a lot of emphasis on rejoicing. There was great rejoicing, verse 17, 
Because finally, they've managed to rebuild the walls. Finally, they've started to rebuild the temple. Finally, they're kind of getting things set up again. And there's a little bit of hope at last. Kind of like, at last, some hope. Okay, that's where we're at. And in the middle of that then, there's a full recounting of Israel's history. All the way from, literally, the beginning. And all the way up to the present moment. I'll comment on this later on, but it's interesting just to track. If you read across the Old Testament, you've got a bunch of passages that do this. Deuteronomy 1 to 4 is like a review of Israel's history. Psalm 78, we read this morning. It's a big chronicle of Israel's history. Acts 7, Daniel 9, you've got a bunch of passages that do this. And the question to ask is why? Like, I don't know. Do, do I spend a lot of time theologizing about Babylonian history. <laughs> if I say this morning, like, okay, let's do history. Oh, great, grown history class. I mean, maybe, maybe you liked history, maybe you didn't like history. I don't know. But the, the, the question would go, why does it matter? Like, why is Israel's history significant? Does it, is there any, how, how, does, how does Israel's history cast any kind of shadow on mine? These are people that lived a long time ago in a place far away from me. I don't even share a language with them from the people that heard this or spoke this original prayer. So how is this at all relevant to my life? And I'm going to read down through it, and here's my, um, kind of my challenge to you. It depends on how many things you want to keep in your mind at the same time. But here's one thing you could go as I'm reading down through. Would you, would you think about maybe marking off? You can do it mentally, or you could actually write it if you wanted Though, you know, the whole cell phone Bible thing, it's hard to write on your cell phone screen, but you can try, whatever. Put a little line as we go through with each movement of the story. Just, I'll just set you up a little bit. The first movement of the story is verse 6, creation. The second movement of the story is verse 7, Abraham. See, it just goes like that, and I'll actually mark them out with my voice as we go. So you could put a little line by each movement of the story or each scene of the play. And if you wanted to keep another thing in your head at the same time, I mean, this is a wild one. It's everywhere. You could put a little star or a mark or something by every description of who God is. The theologians would say an attribute. By an attribute, we mean what is he like? So where you see, for instance, you are righteous, verse 8. Or you alone are the Lord, verse 6. Or your great mercies, verse 19. Okay. Now, now I'm going to read down through the, the history. And if you want to follow along that way, great. If you want to just hear and let the story come past you, great. Nehemiah chapter 9, starting in verse 6. This is their prayer in kind of dedication of what God has done and dedication of themselves. Nehemiah 9, verse 6, you are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. Stage 2, scene 2, Abraham. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abraham and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham, you found his heart faithful before him and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise for you are righteous. 
now the exodus. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud, now we've moved into the wilderness wanderings, you led them in the day and by a pillar of fire in the night to light them for the way in which you could go, they should go. Now Sinai, you came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. And now the rebellion in the wilderness But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their necks and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Even when they made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, you in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. Now the conquest of the land. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sion, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven. You brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land. And you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. And now the, the next section is the judges. I'll just insert in here. Watch for cycles here. They rebel, God shows mercy. They rebel, God shows mercy. They rebel, God shows mercy. Verse 26, nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you. And you abandoned them into the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet 
They acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them, warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hands of the peoples of the lands. I mean, three cycles there. Nevertheless, let's summarize it out. In your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now, let's summarize the whole prayer then. Now, therefore, our God, the great, mighty, and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardships seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria unto this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully. We have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, our fathers have not kept the law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them, even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them. And in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day. In the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts, behold, we are slaves, and its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. What follows is a covenant, it's a commitment or a recommitment of the people have all their, it's like a, like a almost contract. They have a whole long list of names, all the people that are committing themselves to this, committing themselves to follow God's law, his commands, and to be obedient. All right, how do I put my, hand, my head around some of this? Like, how do we process all of this and think about it? And here, I'll give this as a kind of a thesis statement. My, my core thesis statement, my core idea for everything we're going to talk about is that you cannot understand yourself or your situation rightly apart from the person, character, and powerful works of God. God and his character and his works, what, what, who he is and what he's done, those facts, who is God, what has he done, those facts are the lens through which you understand yourself, the world, life, reality. Okay, and... When I use the language of lens, is kind of process. There's two different orders through which you can proceed if you want. You can, you can come to the world on the assumption that, okay, here's the way I view things. I know that's good. Here's the way I view it. That's fact. Now let's see if, if God passes my test. Let's evaluate him according to my canons of what is right, wrong, good, beautiful, and true. Or, turn that order around, here is God, here is what he has said, here he is what he has done, and I will evaluate my canons, my assumptions about what is good, beautiful, true, worthy of pursuit through the lens of who he is. You see the difference on it? Do I evaluate him through my lens or do I evaluate me through his lens? say it again. Do I evaluate him through my assumed lens, or do I evaluate me through his lens? That's a very fundamental choice. And my argument this morning 
is that the lens through which you will understand yourself, the world, and everything else, the, the way that you will understand what it means to live well or to live poorly, the, 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 the understanding by which you will come to and gain an, an appreciation of what is the point of life has to be God, who he is, what he said, what he's done. Okay, so that's my idea. Let me try to substantiate it. And I, I hope even as you went through, I hope it was apparent enough that you have these kind of, uh, what I called them, scenes in the story as you just go down through. I would like to go back through each one of those scenes, and I would like to highlight in each of them kind of the specific truth about God that that scene highlights. So, I mean, let's start with the first one. Verse 6 gave us creation. If you, if you just go through that, the, the assumption or the leading, the, the lead on it, <laughs> At the very front of the paragraph, you are the Lord, you alone. God is the creator, and he's the only. It's not God shared with anything else, and and that makes sense. If you just process out the basic distinction that before there was anything, there was God, so it can't really be, right? It can't be that God shares his place with anything else because everything came from him. If it all came from him, he's it. He's it. And this is, a, this, is a, this is a really transformative category through which to see the world. There are two categories of things in the world, God and everything he made. That's it. There's the only two things. It's not, like, it's not like there was a big empty space and then you stick God into it. It's not like there was a grid and there was, you know, there was time, distance, space, and, and then God is part of that. He's inside of it. No, it's, it's God, and then everything else comes from him. Two categories of things in the world, God and everything he made. And I, if I was going to put this in terms of an attribute, what is God like? I would just say he's unique. He's the only one of his, it, one, that's it. He's the only one like that. He's holy, would be language, biblical language we'd use. He has no, he, there is nothing that compares to him. All right, go to the second paragraph, the second section, verse seven and following. This is Abraham. And it talks about the promises that God made to Abraham. I mean, these are big promises that through Abraham, all the peoples of the earth would be blessed. Abraham is going to be the, the source of blessing to the world. And of course, that's through Abraham's descendant. So it's tied all up with promises about Jesus Christ. And I, the thing I would highlight here, if you, if you learn anything about God in this paragraph, here it is. You have kept your promise for you are righteous. And the link between those is rich. The righteousness of God is the, is the whole idea that God is a God who keeps his word. When God says he'll do something, he does it. Right? Righteous, you can count on him to keep and to fulfill all that he has said he would do. I said earlier kind of this idea, I gave three things actually. What is God like? What has he said? And what has he done? Those three things. So the character of God, the words of God, the acts of God. And those are three separate things. But truthfully, if you listen to this concept, the three are linked in together. Because God is like this, then he speaks words like that and he does what he would say. Or he does what he said he would do. Okay, and so you kind of weave these in. Um, if, if there's a person who makes certain promises like, oh, yeah, I'll take care of that or I'll do this or whatever, and then it never happens. You're like, okay, 
Now it's starting to reflect on the character of the person. It's also reflecting on your ability to, um, to project or guess whether, they, whether you can count on them, right? All of those things hang together. Here's God. God is a faithful, righteous, covenant, promise-keeping God. And when he speaks stuff, you know he'll do it. They all link together. If you move into the Exodus, the pattern of the Exodus is God's provision. So he delivered them, he brought them out, and then verse 15, he gave them bread from heaven for their hunger. He brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. I mean, he gave them everything they needed. One of the things that you wouldn't think to include as provision next to bread and water is he gave them guidance. And the form of that guidance is verse 13 and 14, rules, laws, statutes, commandments. Which I'll come back to that idea later. But just a, a comment on that right here as we go by it. You know, if, if you hear laws, rules, statutes, commandments, you go, oh, okay, that's the nasty stuff. But good thing, Jesus came and he delivered us from the law. I think you've misread it. You've misunderstood it. Okay, think instead of God's laws, his commandments, his rules as, as guardrails, guidance. Like, you know, here, I'm, I'm walking about in a big, scary, confusing, messy world. It's like, well, what do I do? How do I act? How should I conduct myself? And God says, I'll give you some guidance. Now, that links out to the cross because at the end of the day, you can't keep what he gave you to do. Like, you don't have the ability. So you're, I mean, here we are constantly jumping over the guardrails. Woohoo, this is fun. Jump over the edges. Destroy ourselves. It's like, he set that up for your good. Yeah. Oh, I can get over it. See? Isn't that great? I can get over the guardrails God gave me. You might want to think about that. And the cross gives us grace and help to do what we are incapable of doing. But I mean, at the end of it, his guidance is a good thing. The law of God is a gift. It's good. It's beautiful. It's guidance. And so the summary of that section with the Exodus, God provides for his people. He helps his people. He gives them all that they need. That verse, that that transition in verse 16, but is the first pattern that we're now going to, that's going to be woven through the rest of everything. I mean, so far, it's all been focused on God did, God did, God did. And now the people's failure starts to insert itself into the equation, rebellion. And, and all the way now through this following section, I mean, it, it chronicles how they blew it. How they, how they said blasphemous, awful things, like verse 18, make themselves a golden calf and say, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt. Like, really? You made it just now out of gold, and you're going to say, this is what brought you. God, God graciously delivered you with power and with a mighty hand, and he overco- overcame one of the greatest nations on the earth and delivered you out of their grasp, and you turn around and give all the credit to a, a hunk of gold. Good move. And if you read through that section or if you read this discussion of it, it's you know, pretty natural to just think that the, the fair thing would be zap. <laughs> Boom. And the conclusion of this section just after is that God continued to graciously provide for them. Verse 20, 
You gave your good spirit. You did not withhold manna. You sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. And I've got in this section, I've got underlined all of the things that God did. Verse 20, you gave. Verse 21, you sustained. Verse 22, you gave. You allotted. Verse 23, you multiplied. Verse 23, again, you brought them. Verse 24, you subdued before them their enemies. You gave. I mean, so it's here, on. Uh, it, it will do a balance sheet or whatever, debit, credit thing. And on the human side of the balance sheet, sin, blasphemy, rebellion. Divine side of the balance sheet, he gave, he provided, he patiently worked with them, he continued to give, he continued to give. Sorry? Now that balance sheet is just going to, it's, it's just going to control the rest of the passage. Over and over, the people blew it. And God was still gracious. And so if I keep on going, verse 22 to 25, I have the conquest, same patterns that we have. It, it ends out, what's the last, what are the last two words of that section in verse 25? Your, three words, I can't count. Your great goodness. The goodness of God in contrast to the failures of the humans. Verse 26 down through 31 is the story of the judges era all the way up through Israel's kings. And you've already seen, I mean, I highlighted as we talked through it, the, the cycles. But verse 26, against God's goodness, nevertheless, they were disobedient. Against God, and, and, and the answer to that, verse 20, got 28, uh, 27, God's great mercies. But, verse 28, so they're cycle two. After they had rest, they did evil. Verse 29, yet, there's another cycle, there's cycle three. They acted presumptuously, and so God gave them the prophets. Here's cycle four, verse 30, yet, they would not give ear. You got the cycle, the people blow it, God shows mercy. The people blow it, God shows mercy. The people blow it, God shows mercy. This is just the cycle. It does like four cycles around, just to make sure you got the point, right? Just to make make it clear. And summarizes it out, verse 31, Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a a gracious and merciful God. All right, so how would we extract like themes or patterns out of this entire section? And I've got, I guess I forgot to count, uh, four different patterns that are definitive through here. Number one, and we just say the flow of events is not under control, our control. The flow of events or the flow of the story is under God's hand, God's control. God is in charge, not me. Okay, and, and where I'm getting that, I already mentioned like I, in verse 20 down through, I guess it's verse uh, 25, you have this concept of God did, God did, God did, God did. You gave, you sustained, you multiplied, you allotted. I mean, you could, so, so you can just go through the passage and underline all the acts of God, all the works of God in, my, in my, my triad, who God is, what God has said, and what he's done. That's that. The mighty acts of God, the works of God throughout human history. See, but actually the whole account started off on that foundation. The, the foundation for the entire account was God existed before there was anything. He's the creator, right? And so if this creation is his doing, his making, his, it, it, it's his control, then it follows from that as a natural extension. The story plays out. Who's in charge of this universe? 
I've got a wild guess. Maybe the one who made it. As creator, maybe he's also in charge of it. And the whole flow of the story then is the story of how God directed and and worked within human history according to his ends. Maybe you've already had a thought hit your head. Yeah, but what about the fall? What about sin? What about all the nasty stuff? Right, which the pattern will come to and I'll continue to build out is the humans blow it and God is still faithful. See, but in that framework, the flow of it goes that in spite of our sin, it, it's, like, it's, it's like I'm running for the cliff edge and God turns the story back. Humanity is determined to destroy and God turns it back. Who's in control of this story? God is in charge of human history, not us. God is in charge of our earthly experience of human history and not us. And, and I think this is worth commenting on just at, you know, at the front end of it as a total contrast to the whole kind of thinking that depends on self. Okay, this is endemic to uh, kind of a cowboy self-reliance. I got this. I don't need anybody. I'm going to be self-sufficient. I don't want to have to depend on anybody else. I'll take care of it. I got this thing. A famous poem, Invictus, and I won't read the whole pro- poem because it's a long exercise in blasphemy. But the last, the, the last phrase of the poem, it matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Right? And it has a, like, it has a little bit of an appeal to it. It's like, oh, that, you know, yeah, I, can, I can resist any threat. I can do this. Like, it's you, buddy. You got it. And just in total contrast or biblical refutation of that notion, here it is. I mean, you did nothing. You did nothing to manage getting born. You have no power really to feed yourself. Yeah, but I'm a farmer. I mean, you don't create, you don't get that stuff coming out of the ground. You have no power over that. Probably farmers are the people that best understand this. If the rain doesn't come, we're toast, right? There you go. I'm I'm dependent on everything to him. And it's on this basis then that I can make an appeal to him for help. Actually, right, the whole self-reliance, I can do this, I didn't need anybody's help, has an an awful backside to it, which is if, if everything depends on me, if it's all about me, I can't ask for help from anyone else. I'm completely vulnerable. And at the point where inevitably, you know, you've watched the human cycle long enough, you're going to hit some point where you can't do it anymore. Duh. We all die. And at that point, then what? You're going to keep on depending on yourself? Really? You don't have the ability to appeal to anyone else. See, but the richness of the biblical, fr- biblical framework, once I will humbly affirm that I can't do anything of my own strength, then I can turn and I can appeal to God to help me. I can appeal to his grace. A second pattern of this, so first pattern, God is in this control of this world, not me. Second pattern, God's mercy and his patience overcomes human failures. Okay, if I was summarizing out, let's say, like the story of Joseph, 
What's the summary of the story of Joseph? The people blew it. They blew it. The people blew it big. They blew it bad, right? I mean, they, they sold him into slavery. You've got that really awful Judah Tamar story that's in the middle of it. You've got all this doubt and fear and all of that. And you get to the end, Joseph's summary of it. You intended it for evil. Like, <laughs> you, you wanted and you, you, you intentionally sought out evil. But God intended it for good. The people mess it up. And God takes their messes and he turns it into something good, right? The, 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 the chaos and the decay and the horror, the, the acidic perversion of human choices, and God takes messy things and he turns messy things into beautiful things. He takes messy stories and makes them into wonderful stories. This is the story of grace. The humans mess it up, God intervenes, and he makes it good. Um, This is actually almost exactly the wording you have in verse 33. I'll just read verse 33. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us. You have dealt faithfully. We have acted wickedly. If you just, you know, okay, let's put all the actors, here's the play. Let's line up all the actors, cross the playbill. Here they are. Okay, there's all the actors. Now, let's group them. Let's organize them. Okay, I can do that. Here's all the people that messed it up. That's like all the actors, except for one. And here's the person who did everything right. And that's exactly one, God. Okay, I have two categories. It exactly follows the pattern of there's God and everything else, God and everything he made. Here's the people and they blew it. Here's God and he got it right. There you go. I have my categories. And that's the confession in verse 33. You have been righteous. You have dealt faithfully. We have acted wickedly. There we go. Or another way of doing that, just right before, if, if you notice the pattern, I gave the four cycles, you know, the people failed and God showed mercy. If you notice the pattern with those four cycles, each of them also has, as the the flip side of that pattern, the patience of God. So verse 26, they were disobedient. Verse 27, but by your great mercies, you gave them saviors. Verse 28, they did evil. Verse, end of verse 28, you delivered them according to your mercies. Verse 29, they did not obey your commandments. But get down to the end of that, verse 30, you bore with them and you warned them by your spirit. Verse 30, uh, yeah, verse 30, they would not give ear, verse 31, in your great mercies, because you are a merciful and gracious God. Okay, so I mean, each one of those four cycles, the people blew it, God was merciful. <laughs> people blew it, God was merciful. Right? And if you, kind of, if you just kind of put this into the human experience, um, if a person, I don't know, if a person treats you bad or a person treats you unfairly or something, um, you know, you can, okay, they, they blew it and then they come to you, I'm sorry. And you can go like, okay, you know, I, I can forgive you. See, but you start doing multiple cycles of this. It's like, fool me once. That's, you know, okay, but fool me twice. That's on me, right? Yeah, it, it, you do cycles of this and you're like, now I think I see a pattern. Should I Right, And, you know, you get to Jesus and, and Peter much later. How many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times? Like, that's huge. Yeah, 70 times seven. Right? The pattern for this goes, here's a God who over and over and over again in, in repeat cycles, the people blow it, and he's still merciful. He's still gracious. He still forgives. It's extraordinary. 
And it's set up in those cycles just to highlight it. It's, it's the repeat of the process. So God is in control of history. God is consistently merciful in the light of total human failure. Third pattern, God keeps his word. What he said he would do, he does. Right? Remember the triad, who is God, what is he said, what does he do? And what we're saying is these three, three things are all integrated. He does what he said he would do because he is faithful. See the triad? Who is he? What does he say? What does he do? He does what he said he would do because he's faithful, <laughs> because of his nature. And I've got two different ways that the passage expresses that. One way it expresses it is with a whole pattern of laws, statutes, commandments. So this is all over this section. That could be a thing you could go through and highlight. Uh, I did it in blue, <laughs> whatever. Um, you can go through and highlight the, the laws. Verse 13, I've got four words in one verse. Rules, laws, statutes, commandments. Verse 14, commandments, statutes, laws. Verse 16, commandments. I just keep on going from there. So the passage has this strong pattern. I mean, even the conclusion, they have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments or your warnings. All the things that God has said to them throughout. And uh, what I, I said earlier, I mean, process out God's words as guidance, his laws as, you know, God is not giving you laws to keep you away from the fun stuff. He's giving you laws to keep you away from the self-destructive stuff. He's get, you know, when, when he says to you, don't lie, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't commit murder, it, you think of it like we we're just somewhere and they had like a fence around and then signs everywhere and it says, don't jump the fence. Like, you know, they should be fairly obvious. Don't jump the fence. Why? Because inside the fence, the, the, the ground was collapsing and, you know, it's danger. You're going to get killed, right? So you're like, oh, a fence. This is taking away my fun. Let me get over this thing. Okay. Instead, viewing it in terms of, grace. And if I link that to my idea that God does what he said he would do, I mean, here's one of the frameworks for that. God gave them his good word. He warned them what would happen. Verse 34, the warnings that he gave them. And everything that happened to them in terms of judgment was exactly what he had warned them about. Okay, so here's, I mean, it's just a I don't know, uh, uh, conversation or counseling or, you know, working with different situations thing that happens is, I mean, it, it will happen. You'll, you'll, you'll talk to somebody and somebody will say, I have this idea. I'm going to do this thing. You're looking at it. You're like, now that's contrary to God's word. And they're like, yeah, but I think it's going to work out. You're like, but that's not according to God's word. I don't think that'll work out. No, but I think it'll work out. Don't do it. Please don't do it. No, it's going to work out. This is the way to go. It's contrary to God's word. Yeah, but I think it'll still work out. They go, boom, ah, and the pain of it. Okay, but you'll watch and you'll see people will come through. Oh, that didn't work. But I think this next time will. (laughs) Can I just say, when God speaks, he means it. He's not messing around. I mean, he's not messing around. He's been here a long time, everybody. And he knows how the place works because he made it and stuff. And he knows how you work because he made you too. And it, you know, wisdom, listen. Listen to his guidance. He knows what he's saying. 
There's that pattern. There's also the pattern of his promises. Both of these are underneath the concept that God keeps his word. He's a, he's a, he's a God for whom his word, his, his character, and his actions, they, they all cohere. They all, they all work together. His promises, and you see this, like, for instance, in verse 8. You have kept your promise, for you are righteous. It's because of his nature that he's righteous. He's a God who keeps his promises. Or you get this in verse 33, 32 and 33. You have been righteous in all that has come upon us. You have dealt faithfully. You have done, you have act according, acted according to your word. The promises that you made of blessing, they've all come about. And actually, if I did the macro, like if I backed way out, the entire story or the, the entire passage, the entire chronicle of Israel's history is just one massive testimony to this fact. God keeps his promises for mercy and for grace. What else would keep him being patient with all of this mess? Right? I mean, that pattern we saw. The people blow it, God's still merciful and he's gracious. The people sin and God's still faithful to him. Why? Because way, 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 way back he made some promises and he said, through you and your descendants, I will bless the world. So he's, he's just gonna do it. Like in, in spite of everything, in spite of how the people continue to blow it, he will keep his word. He will bring blessing. God is a God who keeps his word. And, and basically, according to what I've just said, kind of a two-edged sword here, that, that if you disobey his word, he's warned you through his word. Watch out. Judgment will fall. God is a God who keeps his word. Don't, don't, don't for a moment think that you're the exception. You aren't. The warnings are real. They're not jokes. They're real. And sin stings and it stinks. And God keeps his word, double-edged sword. God keeps his word. He doesn't make warnings and then kind of like make special exceptions because you're cool. He's a God who keeps his word. See, but double-edged sword, it goes the other direction too. God is a God who keeps his word. And when he promises blessing and forgiveness, I mean, you know, the, the language of 1 John 1, 9, he is faithful and just, faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all right. Do you hear how that's linked up? He forgives because he's faithful and just. The faithfulness and justice of God if you're turning against him, scary thing. If you'll turn to him, the faithful and justice, faithfulness and justice of God is your, your absolute rock-solid foundation. He will forgive. How do I know that? He said he would. And he, it's, it's not a joke, people. Right? It's not messing around. He's, when he says he'll forgive, he will. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins. All of it. <laughs> See? So the mercy and the grace of God resting on the foundation of who he is. But I'm going to transition to the last concept. I've just talked about, like, right, um, justice and two-edged sword, the notion that God will fulfill his word to judge, and he will fulfill his word to bless. I'll just say about those two, those are not symmetrical in this sense. God is a God who will faithfully and justly judge. He is a God who will faithfully and justly forgive. Both of those are true. But he is a God who, who will judge because he must. And he is a God who delights to forgive. They're not symmetrical. 
he loves to forgive. And with grief, if he must, he will judge. And that's because of the last pattern I'd like to draw out of the whole passage. God, the merciful God. Okay, where this starts out is much earlier in the pattern in verse uh, 17. You are a God ready to forgive, gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. That pattern is huge. It starts off in Exodus 34, 6. It's the place where Israel has sinned and some of the the golden calf incident and some of the the recurring sins. And so Moses is ready to, um, he's pleading on their behalf. God reveals himself to Moses. And when he reveals himself, the, the voice that declares who God is, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. So it's, it's like the, the opening or one of the, one of the clearer early statements of who God is and what he's like. And then that pattern just echoes through the rest of the Old Testament. Once you start looking for it, it's huge. It's all over the place. So Exodus 34, Numbers 14, 18, right here, Psalm 86, Psalm 103, Psalm 145, Joel chapter 2, Jonah chapter 4, Nahum chapter 1. It's like all over the place, and actually I'm leaving a bunch of them out. So it it becomes this major recurring pattern that's like a thread through the entire Old Testament, and it shows up here. What is God like? And you see in this kind of concept, or you know, if you, you, you see judgment in here, slow to anger, it says. The anger will fall. Judgment's there. Okay, so there's those aspects of his. But I mean, if you read about the emphasis across it, he's ready to forgive. There's one. He's gracious. He's merciful. He's, he, he, he will judge, but he's slow to anger. And he's abundant in steadfast love. Okay, I mean, it's like the pattern is just filled up with this emphasis on his mercy and his grace. And if you go now to the rest of the, the song or the rest of the history, I should say, you could just highlight where this, this attribute, like, like there's lots of descriptions of God, but this attribute's everywhere. Verse 27, your great mercies. Verse 28, your mercies. Verse 31, your great mercies. And then in the same verse again, you are a gracious and merciful God. So, I mean, mercy just flows through the entire psalm, or through, excuse me, through the entire history here. And if I'm putting that together then, here's the the refrain that's so massive across here. God is faithful to his word, he's faithful to his warnings, he's faithful to judge, but all the way through, just strong emphasis, and he's merciful, and he's merciful, and he's merciful. And you can see, good thing because how, how else, if he was not, how, how quickly these people would be destroyed? Got other passages that do this kind of thing. I was looking earlier at Psalm 136. Psalm 136 is another kind of history of Israel or history of the whole biblical story. And you get this, you know, him who struck the firstborn of Egypt, brought Israel out from among them with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, divided the Red Sea in two. It just goes all the way through. It gives like a comprehensive story of Israel's history. I left out a phrase that is all the way through every single verse for his steadfast love endures forever, for his steadfast love endures forever, for his steadfast love endures forever, for his steadfast love endures forever. If I put that together, then I sin, I fail, the people blow it, and his steadfast love endures forever. Like, how many cycles am I going to get? His steadfast love endures forever. There can be a lot of chaos and a lot of life 
mess that can come through sin. You don't just turn to it and you're like, oh, steadfast love, I can get away with anything. A lot of chaos that can happen. But here is a bedrock. His steadfast love endures forever. And if I turn that now into our conclusion, what does this mean? Like I kind of raised a question or an expectation at the beginning. Okay, this is Israel's history. What relevance does it have to mine? So how do I link that backwards into Joel Arnold's life in 2023, drawing from Israel's experience more than 2,000 years ago? Um, You know, one of the bad ways I could link this up, it's like one of the really easy, natural ways I could link it up, but it's a bad one. It would be something like, you know, okay, when Israel did good stuff, when they obeyed, they got blessing. When they did the bad stuff, it went bad for them. You want to have a good time, not a bad time, right? So do good stuff, and you have a good time. Okay, you link it up like that. Um, and, I mean, there, there are truths here. It's true that, that, that poor living has painful consequences. And as a pattern, generally, asterisk Ecclesiastes, as a pattern, generally, wise living has good consequences, as a pattern, generally. Okay, so, I mean, there's something there. See, but all kinds of caveats, qualifications have to come in here. We're not Israel. There are major aspects in here that don't equate across. Um, yeah. So, uh, right, how do I link it up better or thicker in a richer way? Um, I, I could go further than that if I'm just observing kind of context for this prayer, one of the interesting thing about things about this prayer, or probably the closest prayer to it, which is Daniel 9, is that in both cases, you've got people praying all of this when actually the story has kind of started to turn upward. What I mean by that is, you know, if you track out Israel's history, it's like from about Solomon or David, middle of David's life, we'll do that. From about the middle of David's life, it's like a long, crumbly mess of chaos downward. Right? And you've gotten to the bottom. This is the nadir point. This is the lowest point in their story. It's total destruction. And with Nehemiah and Ezra, at least the story's starting to turn up. Like, this is a little bit of a revival. They've rebuilt the wall. They've rebuilt the temple. They're rededicating themselves. And so they're standing around praising God because he started to restore them. It's kind of a turn upwards. So it's kind of interesting that they could have looked down through all of this and, and, and the framework for the passage could go, those guys blew it. What was wrong with those guys? But we're righteous. Right. And they could do it out like that. And they, I mean, they, like, they wouldn't. They wouldn't be wrong. Well, they would be. But yeah, I mean, those guys were worse. <laughs> like, you know, the whataboutism. Those guys are worse than me. See, but what I, I think what, what the key of it is, is that these people whose story is not exactly entirely fused either with all the people that came before them, these people are making the choice to view themselves within the fabric, within the structure, within the scaffolding, of who God is, what he said, and what he's done. Remember my idea at the, at the start? The lens for which you ought to view yourself, your life, your reality, is, is the grand picture, who God is, what he's said, what he's done. Put yourself into the frab- fabric or the scaffolding of that, and now interpret your reality. What do I do in 2023? The best thing I can do 
is stop, pause, and understand who is God, what has he said, what has he done, and act accordingly. <laughs> Live my life in reference to that. So that's that's whole, one whole framing of how that, 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 that connection goes. Another whole framing of that connection goes, where does the story lead ultimately to the cross? Right? The story of Israel's history is this long thread, and the, the terminus of that thread is, and then Jesus came. And Jesus made things right. And so if I'm going to apply that to my life, then I work through and I need to understand myself in terms of what God is, who he is, what he said, what he's done, ultimately finding its climax or its center point in the cross. And on that basis now, I know how to live and act. All right, I wrote down um, four different specific kind of I don't know, scenarios, things that you might carry. So, I mean, here's, let's say you're facing health problems, struggles, pain, serious, serious threats on your health, your life. Okay, how would I put, how would I view that through the lens of who God is, what he said, what he's done, some of the attributes we've talked about here leading ultimately to the cross. And, and we would say, as you go into that, here's what you have to know. God is in control of all things. Remember, that was our first idea. And so what's happened to me is not, don't fix, you really don't want to fix like the, the, the source of what you're facing in, well, I don't know. I, you know, I probably was in the wrong place at the wrong time and I got hit by a sunbeam and that's why this now, there's nothing, you're not going to get any help there. Okay, God is in control of the world. He knows what he's doing. Is this hard? But God is in control. God fulfills his word. We saw that. God is merciful and gracious. He works mercifully and graciously through our circumstances. And if I link that out to the cross, I mean, here's hope. Jesus has also experienced suffering and pain and death. Jesus went there first, right? Jesus has already walked this really hard road. So, You're going down a really hard road, and you're following Jesus. He's been here first. He overcame. He was was the victor over death. He walks with you in your suffering. Suffering is not the normal state of things. Jesus will eventually, God will, in in the grand story over which God presides, he will eventually wipe every tear from your eyes, and death will be no more. Sorrow and suffering will be gone. Okay, and in the light of that, then, there is a way today, a looking forward to the future day and the future hope. There is a way to be a steward of suffering and live well in the middle of suffering. Okay, so I, I can take the, 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 the difficult circumstance that is mine, view it through the lens of who God is, what he said, what he's done, and, and, and now I'm on a starting point and a foundation to be able to handle that suffering differently through the lens of who he is. Let's say that you're up against financial struggles. How about this? In poverty, there's an opportunity to show that God is enough, that you can lean on him for your joy. I don't need money to make it. There's the reminder that Jesus became poor on our behalf, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. 
Okay, so if I can, if I can view my, my financial challenge through that lens, the story of what God is, or who he is, what he said, and what he's done, linking ultimately to the cross, now I view that struggle through something that actually can, can help me go forward. Let's say you're up against marriage struggles. Let's say, you know, hypothetically, you've been squeaky clean. It's your, it's your spouse completely that blew it. Everything's their fault. Okay. What, what should you do? Well, how, God, how has God treated you when you've blown it? Right? I mean, so if, if theoretically you've been great and they've been awful, you can just take that analogy, bring it across, God has been truly perfect and I've been awful, right? So how has he processed that? How has God treated me when I've blown it? What, what is, how about, what is the point of marriage? The point of marriage is not like, let's be happy and fulfilled, which is nice. We all like that. But the ultimate point of marriage is we're supposed to show a picture of who God is, his relationship with people. Well, we all like to have happy marriages. <laughs> it's better. It's more fun. But ultimately, I want to show something about God, grace, mercy, faithfulness, patience. So what do you do in the meantime while you're trying to work through it? You try to live out mercy and grace and patience because that's what I've received. I mean, look at the mercy and grace he's poured out on me. Can I try to show that in a picture? How about you're facing paraly- par- uh, Excuse me, parenting problems? really difficult situation with a child. I mean, you could, you could be paralyzed by guilt at how you've not done a good job to this point or you know, rem- recount all that. Well, I probably went wrong when I did this or should have done this differently. Like, yeah, every parent's got a laundry list of those. You could still afford to learn from mistakes, do better. I mean, those were, those were real mistakes. Turn to God, confess those. You know that he's faithful and just to forgive our sins. So turn to him and ask for help. Okay, but what, what you can best offer your child right now is humility and truth. You can step forward to do the next right thing from a foundation of humility. And you can know and believe that, that God, working with us as his children, has now for thousands of years faithfully, patiently, and righteously related to wayward children. And, and through mercy and grace, He brought us home. Okay, so in the middle of that, pray yourself, pray, pray constantly, and then then patiently, lovingly, and righteously speak truth and wait and look for God to do a miracle. Okay, if I'm putting all of those pieces together, then what I'm arguing for this morning is that the best way I can understand the lens or lensing through and understanding the reality of what I need to do as a human being. Who is God? He's a God who's gracious, merciful, and patient. What has he said? He's made promises. He's given warnings, and they're true. What has he done? The story's not over yet. He promised the coming of his son. His son came. Salvation is available through Jesus Christ and his cross. And in light of those realities, who he is, what he said, and what he's done, there's hope. You and I then can live in the light of all of that, crying out as these people did, and as scripture itself calls us to cry out, 
that our God, the great and mighty, awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love would show mercy, even though we, the people, messed it up and made a mess of everything, that we would call on him to show his great mercies because he is a gracious and merciful God. Let's pray.